You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back to the fourth lecture in uh, this series of lectures on ethics in the 20th century. In the last lecture, I was exploring the rise of a set of views I call emotivism and non-cognitivism in ethics. I suggested that these views were a response to certain kinds of difficulties with intuitionism and that also these views grew out of the need of those who held a positivistic view of the world to find a place to put the ethical so the ethical wouldn't constitute a special branch of knowledge. Let me go back just for a moment and read a passage from A.J. Ayer in that book, Language, Truth, and Logic, that caused me to lose my religious faith my freshman year in college, that sums this up so well. Ayer says in a sort of typical passage on page 107 of Language, Truth, and Logic, we're able to give an explanation of all the facts about ethical concepts. We say that the reason why they are unanalyzable, which was Moore's view, is that they are mere pseudo-concepts. The presence of an ethical symbol in a proposition adds nothing to its factual content. Thus, if I say to someone, you acted wrongly in stealing that money, I am not stating anything more than if I had simply said, you stole that money, in adding that this action is wrong, I'm not making any further statement about it. I'm simply evincing my moral disapproval of it. It is as if I had said, you stole that money in a peculiar tone of horror or written it with the addition of some special exclamation marks. The tone or the exclamation marks adds nothing to the literal meaning of the sentence. It merely serves to show that the expression of it is attended by certain feelings in the speaker. If I generalize my previous statement and say stealing money in general is wrong, I produce a sentence which has no factual meaning, that is, expresses no proposition which can be either true or false. It is as if I had written stealing money, where the shape and thickness of the exclamation marks shows by a suitable convention that a special sort of moral disapproval is the feeling which is being expressed. It is clear that there's nothing here which can be true or false. Now, this is an enormously attractive picture for people who are puzzled about ethics. It removes ethics from the domain of inquiry, we might say. We're all puzzled about how to live our lives, and here we get an explanation as to why not only should we be puzzled, it would be mere self-deception not to be puzzled in a certain sort of sense because there is no sort of cognitive thing we can grasp which will satisfy our desires and our urge to know what's good and to live a life of goodness and to pursue valuable things. This view, although it's an esoteric philosophical view, in many ways not of much interest to people outside the philosophical seminar room, in other respects is absolutely crucial to an understanding of contemporary culture. These sort of esoteric views about analytic propositions and whether we can define good as they were expressed in the views of people like 
Eyre and Stevenson and Hare were connected to much broader cultural sort of changes which make the ethical, as we might put it, float free of any kind of factual or natural or justificatory grounds. In the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s, we increasingly enter into what we might call the culture of the fact-value gap or the culture of the is-ought gap, as these terms were used. Because notice, what the non-cognitivist view does is to sever the ethical from the natural. It's to sever the ethical from any grounds for the truth of moral judgments. So we have people talking about this vast separation between fact and value, science and ethics, is and ought. And this has ramifications in all parts of our culture. Moral education in the 1960s comes to be more and more connected with what comes to be called values clarification. Instead of attempting to, as it were, engage in moral education by teaching students the truth about ethics, the fundamental truths at least, our goal is rather to just help them clarify whatever desires and attitudes they happen to have. Now such clarification may, from a more classical point of view, be good or it may be bad. It depends, as it were, on where one starts. So non-cognitivism and emotivism, although on one hand an esoteric view in moral philosophy, turning on what are actually very technical questions about semantics and the relation of words to the world and the sort of technical understanding of notions like meaning and reference, although it's very esoteric in that regard, it's deeply connected to features of the world in which we all live. Ayer develops these views in very crude ways. I said last time that Charles Stevenson develops them in a much more sophisticated kind of scholastic way in ethics and language, and a Richard Hare in the 1950s and 1960s in the series of three books he wrote, develops them certainly in their most persuasive form, but in all cases they are developing views that are connected to a sort of cultural world view that comes to be very important at mid-century in this country. Now I want to leave aside for this lecture criticism of this view and I'll return to it next time when I talk more generally about the whole landscape of these meta-ethical discussions. But I want to turn in this lecture today to a kind of mopping up exercise. My own view is that in 20th century ethics, what happens is after the emergence of non-cognitivism in the 1930s, it gets richly developed over the next decade until it encounters substantial negative criticism in the 1950s and 1960s. This criticism not only attacks non-cognitivism, but it attacks the whole enterprise of sort of meta-ethical investigation that had been going on through the 50s and 60s and fuels a return to a more traditional normative theory in the early 1970s. Today, I want to talk about the criticism of this non-cognitivist and emotivist set of meta-ethical views and prepare the way for next lecture when I want to talk about the transition to the return to the exploration of more classical questions in normative theory. And I want to talk about the criticism of non-cognitivism by looking at, very briefly, at three different figures and three different views. You will have readings from all of those of you taking the course, all of these figures in the material prepared uh, for this course. And the, um, 
the figures are Philippa Foote, John Searle, and Elizabeth Anscombe. And they give quite different arguments, although Foote and Anscombe's views in certain respects are similar. They give quite different negative responses to the kind of emotivist and non-cognivist theory that we saw exhibited in Ayer's work. First, a word about Philippa Foote. She wrote a series of articles in the late 1950s and early 60s, which are an all-out assault on this kind of non-cognitivist view that suggests that moral judgments are themselves merely expressed of our attitudes and detached altogether from any sort of anchor in nature or fact or science or the way things are. And she was able to make this attack partly because of features of her personality. She's a very strong philosopher. She's witty. She has no room for nonsense. Her strength perhaps comes from an interesting background. Her mother was the last baby born in the White House. Although she's English, her mother was American. It was the daughter of Grover Cleveland, was born in the White House. You may know, this is a good trivia question for Barr Betts, that the Baby Ruth candy bar was named after that baby born in the White House in the 1890s, whose granddaughter was Philippa Foote. Philippa Foote is still doing moral philosophy in her late 80s at Oxford University and uh, is still carrying on the discussions connected to the themes I want to talk about briefly here. Philippa Foote is one of the main critics of, or she focuses her criticism largely on the development of these emotivist views in Richard Hare, who was her colleague at Oxford. And I mentioned her strength and her humor because her arguments, although powerful when stated abstractly, have even more power, I think, when she put them rhetorically because she simply stated over and over again that we could not believe or accept this picture of the ethical put forward by people like Ayer, Stevenson, and Hare, that when we talk about ethics, we're merely expressing attitudes which have no anchor in the world, in nature, or in facts. That's why I call this lecture Recovering the World, Recovering the Connection of the Ethical to the World. Uh, Foote thought that there were two assumptions of anti-naturalism, and I mean by this anti-naturalism here essentially non-cognitivism and emotivism, the views that attack any naturalistic account of ethics. And these are put sort of abstractly, but I think we can get at them simply. The first assumption of people like Ayer was this. Some individual, they assumed that some person may, without logical error, base his belief about matters of values entirely on premises which no one else would recognize as giving evidence at all. So I could, for example, if what Ayer says is right, I could say that I approve of a certain kind of action because it happened on Tuesday morning between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Or I approve of it because it was done with a man with large ears or perhaps a man with short ears. And there's, no, there's nothing inappropriate about that. There's nothing logically inappropriate about that. And that surely seems right that that is an assumption. If our moral judgments are simply an expression of our desires and attitudes and there are no logical limits to those, why should there be any logical limits to how we can, uh, what kind of grounds we can give for our moral judgments? The second assumption is related to this, but importantly different. And it's the assumption that given the kind of statement which other people regard as evidence for an evaluative conclusion, he may refuse to draw the conclusion because this does not count as evidence for him. So here the assumption is, you might give me, express a moral judgment and give evidence for it, 
And I am always free, no matter what your ethical judgment is, to reject not just the judgment, but the evidence you give for it as irrelevant. What Foote's pointing out is it's part, it's at the heart of non-cognitivism and emotivism that any use of moral language is severed absolutely from the grounds for that use. I can have any grounds whatsoever for my expression of moral judgments and I can reject any grounds that you give because logic, the structure of the world, the way things are has nothing to do with what counts as a reason for action. Now, Foote gives very complicated responses to these in some of the most beautiful, I think, articles in moral philosophy written in the 20th century, especially, uh, sorry, we call moral belief. She has another one called moral arguments, another one called goodness and choice. They're beautiful instances of a certain kind of careful analytic philosophy picking away at a mistaken view. What is her response to one? The idea that there are no logical limits to what we can count as evidence. Foote asks us to focus on what she calls evaluation as the kind of thing we do when we express moral judgments. And she wants to distinguish, it's in the first point here, between what she calls internal and external relations to objects of sort of mental states. So when we evaluate something or express our thought that it's good or it has a certain kind of moral property, we're related in a certain way to that object we're approving of. And the mental state can be externally related to it is to be related to it in a way that there are no limits to what kind of object can be appropriate for certain attitudes. To be internally related is to suggest that there are limits. Now, Foote thinks that many of our mental attitudes about the world, which would include evaluation or passing ethical judgments, that have internal relations in ways that might surprise a motivist. As a way of illustrating what Foote has in mind with regard to internal relations, consider pride as an emotion. She wants to suggest that one might think that since pride is an attitude and expresses an emotion, one might think that there are no logical limits whatsoever to what one can feel pride in. For example, it just depends upon the particular kinds of attitudes and expressions you have. Now, Foote wants to argue that this is false. Feelings like pride are not such that one can feel pride in anything. Imagine a man who stands on a beach and purports to feel pride in the Atlantic, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, it might be that someone who's absolutely mad might express this view and express it intelligibly because that person thinks, for example, that perhaps he created the Atlantic Ocean. But without that kind of background belief, that this is an object that I created, the claim that one feels pride in it is simply false and unintelligible. There are logical limits to what we can count as feeling pride. In the same way, there are logical limits to what we can regard as things that are dangerous and that's connected to the limits to what we can feel fear. If I suggest, for example, that I might be afraid of a chocolate ice cream cone, that becomes utterly unintelligible unless I have some other beliefs about the way the world is connected so that a chocolate ice cream cone is dangerous to me and I can't believe that just anything is dangerous to me unless it, for example, is connected to notions like injury, uh, things that could actually, and I can't believe that absolutely anything counts 
as an injury to me unless it fits in certain ways with other features of the world. Now, this example may seem to be taking us a long way from ethics. In a certain sense, it is. Foote's point, however, is that when we express our views about what's good, we're expressing attitudes toward things in the world, and these attitudes are inevitably caught up with other ways in which we think about the world. We think about what's dangerous, what's an object of fear, what we can feel pride in, what's good for us. She develops the view that evaluation and that thinking something good and commendation are, like pride, things for which there will be logical limits. Foote makes similar arguments, and I'm going to pass over these very quickly. Those of you who are taking the course will be reading these articles, these arguments in her article, to the second assumption. She again looks at examples like injury, courage, and justice, and argues that there are logical limits to what can count as grounds for the attribution of certain attitudes or emotions to people. What Foote's working at with a sort of very careful way here. She's working toward suggesting that moral judgments about the world are expressive of certain features of us that are inevitably caught up in a nexus of facts and features of the world so that any attempt to sort out, as the positivist and the non-cognitivist wanted to do, the factual from the evaluative, the scientific from the ethical, will inevitably be doomed. She herself doesn't construct a positive sort of ethical theory, but she is picking away in this fundamental manner at some of the claims of the non-cognitivist and the emotivist. Quickly, I want to look at someone quite different from Foote. John Searle, in a famous article, How to Derive an Ought from an Is, has the same target as Foote, and he develops an argument which I want to put on the board, and I hope you will think about it later. It's an argument which many people think is, uh, doesn't get very far. Even people who try to reject it right off find themselves still thinking about it 10 years later. Searle said, the way to show that the non-cognitivists are wrong, that we can't get oughts from ises, that values are disconnected from the world, is just to give an argument where we get an ought from an is. Hence the title of his article, How to Derive an Ought from an Is. And he gives us an argument in five steps. The first premise, which is an is premise. It's a premise about how the world is. Jones uttered the words, I hereby promise to pay you, Smith, five dollars. Uh, the second premise, Jones promised to pay Smith five dollars. Searle's claims that that follows from this. If you utter those words, you've made a promise. Third, if Jones promised, then he placed himself under or undertook an obligation to pay Smith $5. Fourth, Jones is under an obligation to pay Smith $5 if he undertook one. Fifth, Jones ought to pay Smith $5. Now, we don't want to make this claim look larger than it is. Searle wants to suggest that here we have an instance of an argument, a valid deductive argument, which begins with a clearly factual claim that Jones uttered certain words, that's a fact about the world, and ends with a conclusion that Jones ought to do something. Now I invite you as an exercise just to look through this argument and see what you make of it, either as uh, valid or sound. There's certainly no reason, I think, to dispute the truth of most of these premises in this hypothetical case. The only question would be, do all the premises follow from the ones above? And I promise you, if you think it's easy to show where this argument goes wrong, you're mistaken. What Searle wants to introduce here is actually a complex set of ideas, much in the way Foote did about the way ethics relates 
to the world. Foote had wanted to suggest, as I suggested, that our attitudes and our attitudes of evaluation and commendation that are involved in ethics are involved in complicated ways with facts and features of the world. There are logical limits to what we can feel and what we can say and ultimately what we can do. Searle wants to suggest that our words are connected, our use of ethical language are connected with institutions. Like here we have the institution of promising. In fact, Searle says the reason this argument works is because that I promise is what he calls an institutional fact. Promising is, as it were, an enabling institution in human life. By uttering certain words, I can actually do something. I can promise to pay you $5. Marriage would be another institution. By uttering certain words, I do, I marry someone. By using words, we do things and we involve ourselves in institutions and being involved in those institutions will have consequences for what we ought to do. And human life, Searle wants to say, is shot through with such institutional involvements. It's useful to think about these kinds of examples in connection with games. Imagine someone playing a baseball game who swings at pitches three times, misses all three times, and is told that he's out and told that he ought to leave the field, but responds by saying he had just read the non-cognivus and uh, A.J. Ayer, and he realizes that you can't get an ought from an is from the fact that he swung and missed three times. It doesn't follow immediately that he ought to leave the field or that he's out. We find that preposterous, and not preposterous even in a very interesting way. To play baseball is to engage in certain kinds of activities and to use certain kinds of language that inevitably involves us with norms and commitments. In the same way, Searle wants to say, involvement in institutions like promising involves us with norms that give us obligations and make it possible for us to think in quite different ways than the non-cognivists did about the relationship between is's and ought's. Now, both Searle and Foote are not interested in doing constructive moral philosophy. They don't provide us with analyses or accounts of the meaning of the moral terms. They don't move us in the direction, although Foote later does this in her career, of large-scale ethical theories. What they do is raise objections to what they take to be an oversimple view of the relationship of the ethical to the world. Different kinds of sort of complexities. Now the third person I wanted to talk about in this lecture, and I'm going to postpone talking about her until the next lecture where she fits just as well, is Elizabeth Anscombe, who comes on the scene at about the same time, agrees with many of the arguments that Foote and Searle have made, but raises the stakes in this argument and suggests that what these arguments show is not just that the culture of is-ought and fact-value is deeply mistaken for kind of technical reasons in philosophy, but Anscombe is going to argue that the whole of 20th century ethics got off on the wrong foot with the kinds of questions that Moore was asking. And in fact, she proposes that we need to stop in an article written in 1958 called Modern Moral Philosophy. Elizabeth Anscombe suggests that we need to stop doing moral philosophy altogether for 25 years, catch our breath, and get started on a new tack. 
I'll begin the next lecture by talking about her themes and then move to a more general discussion of the transition in the 1960s and early 1970s to the revival of the kind of large-scale normative theory that Moore had abandoned in 1903 but had been carried throughout the 19th century. We will find a return to those same questions addressed by Kant and uh, Sidgwick and Bentham and Mill in the early 1970s. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.